Now back to Sports 56 Mornings on Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. This hour is brought to you by Acura of Memphis. Okay, you know, this car looks great wrapped around you, you know. Here once again, Greg Gaston and Eli Savoy. Welcome back, everyone. 9.05 the time. Final hour for us today here on Sports 56 Mornings. Greg Gaston, Eli Savoy, and Zach Boyd with you from the Family Leisure Studios. Family Leisure, where family and fun come together. Their overstock sale continues at 2120 Witten Road, just north of I-40. Currently 69 degrees. Cloudy skies. We're going to have intervals of clouds and sunshine throughout the day and a high of 83. Tonight, a few clouds with a low of 64 and windy with gusts up to 30 miles per hour. Tomorrow, intervals of clouds and sunshine with a high of 82 degrees. It is Tuesday. It is time to talk some Rhodes Athletics. It's time to go inside Rhodes College Athletics on Sports 56 Mornings. Every week, a representative from Rhodes will join Greg and Eli to talk about all things Lynx. Let's go inside Rhodes Athletics now on Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. Just two weeks left to go in the football season. We've been enjoying Coach Rich Duncan uh, for weeks now, and he's going to join us here in just a moment. But uh, this Saturday will be the final home game for Rhodes on the gridiron as they will take on Birmingham Southern at 1 p.m. over at Crane Field. And then a road trip to Barry College to wrap up the regular season. A crazy one last Saturday as the Lynx fell 50-49 to Hendricks, a game played at War Memorial in Little Rock, Arkansas. And again, it is great to always talk Rhodes football with Rich Duncan. He's the head football coach. You can follow him on Twitter at Coach Rich Duncan. Well, Coach, uh, there are crazy games and there are crazy games. That one's got to be up there. Yeah, it's one of the old times. Uh, it felt like we were playing tennis on grass and uh, <laughs> the ball went back and forth. And it was a lot of fun if you were watching it on the live stream. Uh, you know, get a lot of messages after the game. The broadcast crew did a really good job and it was a lot of fun for the fans. It wasn't so much fun for the head coach of the Lynx. When you're in the midst of a game like that, and you're trying to figure out defensively, like what what can we do to stop this team? Like, what's that like? Are you is it just constant adjustments? What are you trying to do to figure out how to slow a team down? You know, we've played really, really good defense over the last two years, and they caught us in a couple things that we couldn't figure out the adjustment to. And credit to them, uh, that you know they've got a really good coaching staff, and um, you know they they were they were just able to get into a couple th- looks that we we couldn't get ourselves adjusted to, and everything we tried to do didn't work. It was like you know it's like when the water when the water's leaking and you're doing everything you can to get it shut off, and it just wouldn't stop. Yeah, last week we were talking about the great defensive effort from your game previous. So along the lines of of what Eli just asked you, as the game is going on early, do you realize we're just going to have to outscore these guys. It's going to be an offensive uh, show, and if it's not for us, we're going to we're going to have trouble winning this game. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty evident to me. The first possession, um, you know, kind of they went through us like 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 the old saying through a goose. But uh, you know, it, it went down fast, and you know, I thought, oh smokes, if we don't we don't come back and answer this score right away. We're going to be in for a long day. And to to credit our offense, went right back down the field and scored. But you you got to feel early that this was going to be a high scoring game, just kind of the way it was playing uh, from the opening kick. The um, obviously the the positive side of it is that your offense was able to put up forty nine points and kept you in this game and gave you the chance at the end to win the game. So while it was a 
you know, you're, it's kind of that complimentary football. There's going to be times when the offense doesn't have it, the defense has to pick them up, defense doesn't have it, the offense has to pick them up, and the offense did in this situation. You know, I talked to the, the, the kids after the game. You know, a year ago, we went over there and got beat 6 nothing. played unbelievable defense, couldn't put the ball in the end zone, missed five shots in the red zone, and... Um, you know, this year we got beat 50-49, and you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the score is. It's not the offense's fault. It's not the defense's fault. It, it, our job as a football team is to score one more than the other team, and um, no matter what the game is played, and we, we build a program that we can play in any style. If we got to get up tempo and, and score a lot of points, we can. You know, right now we prefer to slow it down a little bit, but um, you know, we got in, like I said, we got in a tennis match and we had to go score, and unfortunately, we just we were, we came up one short. That's crazy. Six nothing last year to, yeah. to fifty to forty nine between the same two teams. Six That's, points to ninety nine points. You went from a soccer match to a tennis match. <laughs> we did. We did absolutely. All right, so it comes down to the wire because you guys keep battling back, and eventually you took the lead, and then they battled back. Comes down to the end. 21 seconds left in the game. You guys trail 50 to 43. You get a touchdown pass from Wilhelm to Barlow. You could try the extra point to tie the game up, send it in overtime, or you can go for two. And we have talked a lot about that on this show, about coaches' reluctancy not to go for two points to try to win the game, especially in this situation where your defense has been pretty much spent all game long. You do decide to go for two. Take us through your thought process and then the actual play call and, and what really happened on that play. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I told our offensive coordinator, Matt Cow before we got the ball back, hey, we're going to get out and score, and we are going for two, so make sure you got a play. We've, we we'd already expended two two-point conversions, and then we used one of our conversion plays to score another touchdown. So, you know, we were into our fourth call, but we felt like it was a good call. And, um, you know, it was kind of funny. We got the ball. We, we caught a pass, and we were first and goal at, like, the three-yard line. And um, we got called for an offensive pass interference call, you know, on a rub play. And uh, so the ball got backed up, and we were able to score a touchdown. So here we go. We called timeout after we score. We had plenty left. Uh, to make sure we were on the same page because it was the fourth two-point conversion call. And, you know, when you start to get deep, you got to make sure that all your personnel's good. But uh, and we felt like we were good. Um, you know, we started the play. They called a timeout. So, you know, you have the whole timeout, timeout. And at that point in college football, now you can't call a third. Mm-hmm. Both teams have to go play. Um, we, we felt like we got a good play call off. They blitzed. Um, you know, we felt like we got grabbed on the throw. Uh, receiver, it didn't get called. Um, but that's the way it goes. And, you know, I told our kids after the game, we didn't lose the game because they didn't make a call on the two-point conversion. We we just missed too many opportunities, both sides of the ball and special teams leading up to it, and that was the end result. But, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a close bang, bang, and, um, you know, the official decided to pass on it, and that was the end of the game. We tried to onside kick but didn't recover it. You... We've talked about this before, but you talked about the fourth two-point. How many do you go into a game with, basically, normally about a two-point? Yeah, point? We, we typically go in with seven or eight because, you know, you know, we talked about this a yeah. few while ago that, you know, when you have to get to the two-point conversion segment of overtime. And, um, you know, we feel like we have a bunch of them, but you, you don't feel great about all eight of them. You know, you hope <laughs> yeah. you don't get that deep, but you have some that, you know, are kind of, hey, if these if we get there, this is what we got to do. Is there, do you, would you, can you run one, like, Multiple times, like you maybe can't. a little slight different formation yeah, or something, yeah, so it's can. not recognizable. You, you, you mask them with formation, and we do that. And we didn't happen to do that Saturday, but um, you know, we got a couple plays off of plays, and um, 
you know, we, we, we felt like we had a playoff of play to score the last one is kind of what happened. And, you know, I, I think, Greg, you asked me, you know, the thought process going for it. And, um, you know, hey, in a situation for our football team on Saturday night, um, you know, our defense had played like crazy. Uh, we weren't able to get stops. I felt like our best chance to win the game was right then and there for the two-point conversion. Um, you know, I got a lot of messages after the game, you know, people that I know and love. And, hey, Coach, I'd have gone for it. You know, I think it was the right decision. And, you know, in the back of my mind, you know, I'm thinking, I, I really don't care what y'all think. I, I, it was the right decision for us. I love you. I appreciate you supporting me. But, um, you know, the, our kids were on board. Everybody was ready to go for two. It just didn't work out. The In that last drive, in a game like that, especially when you – how much are you trying to make sure – and I don't know how it worked out, but – use the entire clock in that drive to make sure if you do score, they don't have the time to come back. Yeah, you know, we got the ball, I don't know exactly, a little over two minutes. Um, we were trying not to hurry up. We were trying to make sure it was last possession. Uh, but we hit a big play. And uh, then we hit another big play you know, with a run right behind it to get it down to the three before the penalty. And um, I was worried we were going to leave too much time. The penalty actually helped us because it ate <laughs> some time off the clock. So you really, so you really concern yourself with that. See, I always, I always think about. I know how important that is, but I always think, get the damn points. Yeah, we were take trying the to lead. Score. You know what I mean? We were trying to score, but we we knew that hey, if you leave them a minute thirty left, yeah. Um, Especially with the way this game, yeah, the going, way the right? game's yeah. playing, I don't know that we're going to get the ball back again, and they're going to have a really good chance to score. So we. We, we were not at a forensic pace. We weren't in two-minute drill. We were moving up tempo, but we were not at the two-minute drill speed um, as we tried that last drive. We knew we could, you know, flip side is we knew we could move the ball as well. And uh, we felt like, you know, uh, we had a really good shot to win. You know, like I said, I told our offensive coordinator, hey, we are going to get down and score. And, you know, we are. And that wasn't false bravado. I really felt like we'd get on the field and score. Because in those situations, that's how I always – like the chess match, like does the defense start calling timeouts under the assumption that the offense is going to score and we want to preserve time, so we do get the ball back, and then but then we don't really want to help them by giving them time. I think that chess match in those situations of how it all works is always interesting to see how coaches do it differently. Yeah, you know, and you know, we talked about last year's game it was a six nothing game. They get the ball back with about seven minutes to go, and we never saw it again. And, uh, oh, wow. you know, they, they were able to eat the last seven minutes off the clock. And, you know, so we were really closely managing, even though it was a different style of game. You know, we're, I'm really closely managing the clock and figuring out possessions and because I knew kind of where we were there. This may sound silly to you, but is, is a loss a loss? Are all losses the same? No, you asked me this before. No, I have, no they're okay. not all the same. They're not all the same. Okay. So the players reaction after and through practice this week preparing for Birmingham Southern was it a tougher loss to uh, swallow losing the way they did or would a last year's six nothing when you really got nothing going offensively be a harder one to swallow you know football is a unique sport um you know when you get they are different I think offensive players and defensive players react to things differently um you know, when you get beat 6 nothing, there's nobody when you walk in the locker room on offense that's going to say a word because they know they let the team down and they know the defensive guys are, are the defenders of the flag, right? They're the guys that always play with their back to the wall and um, you never want to let your, your special forces, so to speak, down. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you lose 50-49, to 49, 
offensive kids don't have the same gut-wrenching feeling, even though that was a one-point loss that the defense kind of didn't didn't hold on to or whatever. It uh, you know, offensive kids look at it well. Hey, you know, we scored seven touchdowns and holy smokes, we just came up a little bit short. There's a different reaction in a locker room. After a game to a six nothing to a fifty to forty nine, uh, just because of the temperament of defensive and offensive players. Interesting, interesting. Okay, you um, on the individual front, your two quarterbacks combined for three sixty one and six touchdowns. You had two hundred yard receivers that combined for five touchdowns. So certainly, get on the offensive side, there were some outstanding individual efforts. Yeah, there were. Um, and and we don't want to. You know, I'm never going to gloss over that. We played really well. Um, We've done a really good job, I think, of building a team culture that it doesn't matter who who get. You know, if you look across the, our eight games, we've had a lot of different guys have really good football games and score. And we we've built a culture where it's about what we do and not about what I do. And uh, I'm really proud of our guys for that. And uh, it doesn't matter at the end of the year. We'll let other people decide who they think our all-conference players are. But we, we, we want to build a program where we, we have 95 guys, 96 guys, all pulling in the same direction. And I think we've been able to do that. It's the rare, it's, it's the rare situation. Not like it's unprecedented. We've seen it in, in, in football at, at all levels, but not a ton of times where two quarterbacks are both effective as your two quarterbacks and Wilhelm and Reeder both threw for three touchdowns. Both uh, longest touchdown throw was 41 yards. One was 16 of 22. One was 10 of 13. So I know we discussed some of this last week, but you feel so confident in the two that you want to use both those guys. Yeah, and you know, it doesn't you know, it doesn't matter which one's in the game at the end. Um, literally, whoever's up's up, and uh, you know, they both are really, really effective. And uh, I think they cause some defense problems uh, because of their style. They're tough to defend too. Um, you know, it, it makes our offense better, and and they're both really good football players. I think on a lot of college football teams, they would be QB one, so to speak. Uh, I'm really happy we have them. Uh, they're great kids. They're great teammates. Uh, they cheer each other on. And they both want to be out there all the time, but they also understand the deal. So I'm really happy for them. So this week, Birmingham Southern, before you finally get your bye week, <laughs> we talked about that last week. That oh, that's right. So three comes, weeks. Yeah, I just uh, spoke. Yeah. Birmingham Southern, what kind of game, what t- kind of team is this? You know, they, they they were nationally ranked a year ago. We beat them at home. Uh, they had a shot to be a playoff team. They haven't had the year they've wanted. Um, you know, they lost their head coach after last season. He took another job. Uh, they had some players transfer. They had the na- nation's leading rusher a year ago, and he transferred out, and he's playing a Division II level now. Um, they, they had a really tough start to their season. I think that at one point they'd lost four straight. Uh, they've bounced back. Uh, they've won a couple uh, here lately, playing way better football. Uh, statistically, we're really close to each other defensively. Um, we're a little bit ahead of them offensively. Uh, but you know, it'll be a tough test. I mean, obviously, we beat them at home last year and knocked them out of an opportunity to go to the playoffs to end the season. And uh, they'll, they'll come in here ready to play. When it's senior day, from a coaching perspective, and you kind of, it's that official kind of honorary goodbye. Obviously, they're going to play another game for you, all that stuff. But what, what's senior day like from you, for you from a coach's perspective? You know, so it's, it's an emotional day. I, I try to keep it as routine as I can. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those guys have, have invested a lot in our program. And uniquely for me in my 30 years of coaching, this year happens to be my son's going to be one of those guys. And, 
you know, that, that's going to be a tough one for, for his mom and I. Um, we, we've spent the last 28 years chasing our kids around sports, and I've uh, been lucky enough to have the opportunity to coach my son. Um, that'll, be a, that'll be a tough moment for sure. Well, congratulations to you and your son, your family, for that, that moment. It'll be a special moment. I'm curious, why do you play Birmingham Southern back-to-back years at home? Our league schedule's crazy. We're playing. We added a team to the conference, and the way the schedule got set up, it just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm going to bring it up at the end of the year, but you know, we played half of our schedule on the at home as a repeat, and half of our schedule on the road as a repeat. And I don't know how this ended up, but it is what it is. You it know? is what it is. <laughs> you know, you're going to play everybody in your conference. Yeah. You got to play them. And, you yeah. know, the order sometimes you don't like it or whatever, but uh, you got to play everybody. So what, what makes a difference? Go play them. They, they give you the schedule. You go play it. Yep. You go play the games. <laughs> well, like I said, two games, although two over a three week period with that rare, not rare, but really, really late bye week for Rhodes. So again, Birmingham Southern this Saturday, homecoming. Right? Homecoming or home finale? No, Just home, a home, finale. Finale. home finale. And then the week off, and then Barry on the road, which we certainly know will be a challenge. Coach will be with us next week. We'll recap the Birmingham Southern game, and then, of course, the week after he'll be on to preview the game against Barry. And then we'll wrap it all up and then get ready for basketball as we continue to feature Rhodes Athletics during this time slot uh, throughout the fall and into the winter and early spring. Coach, it's always great to have you on the program. I know it was a tough loss, but uh, go get him this week, and we'll talk to you next Tuesday. I really appreciate you guys having me. Thanks, Greg and Eli. He is Rich Duncan. He's the Rhodes football coach. You can follow him on Twitter at Coach Rich Duncan. This hour of the program is brought to you by Acura Memphis, Ridgeway 385. That's where you'll find them. That's where you're going to find those beautiful Acura automobiles, new vehicles, certified pre-owned Acuras, plenty of other pre-owned vehicles as well that you'll find at Acura of Memphis. You can also find them online at AcuraOfMemphis.com. Go by, take a test drive, talk to the great folks at Acura Memphis. If you're in the market for an automobile, it's the best place to buy Acura of Memphis. Blake Topmeyer from USA Today Network will join us next to talk some SEC college football. This is Sports 56 Mornings with Greg and Eli on Real Sports Talk, Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. Broadcasting from the Family Leisure Studio, we are Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. Now back to Sports 56 Mornings on Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. This hour is brought to you by Acura of Memphis. Get them to sign on the line which is dotted. Here once again, Greg Gaston and Eli Savoy. Gonna put the world away for a minute. Pretend I don't live in Welcome back, everyone. 925 the time. Final half hour and change on this Tuesday edition of Sports 56 Mornings. Tomorrow, among our guests, Michael Cole will preview... The Grizzlies, an opening day tomorrow night for the Grizz against the New Orleans Pelicans. Jerry Palm from CBS Sports Plus. We'll talk some Tigers football, Memphis Tigers football with Jonah Dillon. That'll be coming up at 7.30. Five favorite things, your five favorite television cops of all time. Without further ado, time to talk some SEC football and the national football scene as well with our friend Blake Topmeyer, who joins us every other week from USA Today Network. He's their SEC columnist. You can follow him on Twitter at BTopmeyer. Hey, Blake. Hey, guys. How's it going? Were you at uh, Tuscaloosa? I was, yeah. So, 
obviously a tale of two halves. Tennessee doing everything right in the first half, and then the second half a complete domination by by Alabama. What did what did you see? How why the the domination of Alabama? What were the struggles from Tennessee all about in that second half? Yeah, well, defensively, uh, Alabama. I mean, they just they got a lot more disruptive. Uh, Nick Saban said, you know, in the first half, Alabama was really playing to try to stop the run. Um, you know, Tennessee came into the game uh, ranked number one in the SEC and and rushing. And uh, so I guess going in the game plan was was really to focus on that. Well, mm-hmm. then you know, Joe Milton uh, was in a rhythm passing. He was. He was running. He, I mean, it was kind of the Joe Milton show in the first half, and so you know Alabama adjusted to try to get uh, uh, more pressure on Milton, uh, more disruptive up up front and in the passing game, and uh, that paid off, I thought. And we, we've seen this from Alabama's offense, where they kind of come in, in fits and spurts, right? Like this is a this is an offense that's really built around the big plays. And, and when the big plays aren't hitting, it can look pretty bleak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when they are, the, the points come in bunches. And, and we saw that after halftime. I mean, you know, very first drive of the, of the second half, which I think really is where the game started to swing. Uh, I mean, boom, boom, Alabama hit two big plays. but uh, And they're in the end zone, and 75 yards in, in two plays. But I also think, Alabama got more creative offensively in the second half. Like, you know, we saw a couple jet sweeps go for, for big yardage. Um, you know, different different stuff that we didn't see in the first half. And, and really, um, you know, I, I thought it was a case of, of Alabama digging in and um, in the moment not being too big for them. And, and I think the opposite being true for Tennessee, right? Like, um, you know, I think they, they probably felt the victory was was right there in, in hand, um, and I'm not saying they packed it in, but I, I do think that they, uh, um, you know, maybe felt the pressure of, of winning at Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because there is a certain type of pressure of knowing, hey, we we got a we got a chance here. Let's mm-hmm. let, all we have to do is finish them off, and um, and the stakes kind of rise, and, and Tennessee folded. Of course, if you ask their fans, they'll just say it was the officials' fault. So, really, really <laughs> that second half was all the officials' fault. So, I didn't have to worry about that. The Alabama here they are, still undefeated in SEC play, despite some limitations they have at the quarterback position. And everything else is this Nick Saban's best coaching job he's done at Alabama. We'll see what happens the next few weeks, but you know, if he gets them to the playoff. Um, I, I certainly think you'd have to say so, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think he's done a really nice job with this team. There, there's no doubt. I think that Alabama is improving. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because, um, I sometimes have to be careful because, you know, two things are true. One, I, this, this is not, as I think we would all agree, this is not one of Nick Saban's best teams. Uh, I don't, I don't think it ranks probably in his top 10, of mm-hmm. best teams. And yet, I, I, again, sometimes I have to be careful because it's like, I never want to describe them as like this plucky welterweight either because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like they, they are still loaded with talent. Right. Um, I mean, like, you know, Chris Braswell and Dallas Turner, you watch those guys for a few plays and you're like, oh yeah, there's, uh, there, there's some studs on this team. But yeah, yeah I mean, I, I do think 
two things. One, I think Saban's done a nice job with it, with his team. Two, he's either doing a really good job of like hiding it or acting, or he's really enjoying coaching this team. I mean, you know, we kind of heard all off season the murmurs of uh, Saban. Saban's not real interested in this anymore. He's, uh, you know, this this thing's not for him. You know, the evolution of college football, the NIL, and everything. This is he's getting tired of this. Um, I mean, we all kind of heard those murmurs in the off season, yeah. and you know, I think Saban actually added into that narrative because, quite frankly, he was pretty, in my opinion, he was pretty insufferable in the off season. <laughs> I mean, he was he was complaining about the effects of NIL. He was grumbling about Alabama's proposed schedule. If the SEC went to nine games, I mean, he really kind of spent a lot of the off season uh, being like the grunk, the grumpy Nick Saban. But then the games <laughs> arrived, and it's like a weight has lifted off his shoulders. I mean, he's he's smiling, he's cracking jokes, he's he's got a cigar stuffed in his mouth after the game, even though he doesn't smoke. He's he's running, you know, from one end of the field to the other to thank the student section, like. Um, Again, he's either doing a good job of faking it or I think he's having a really good time this year. Um, and, and I think, you know, I don't know if he would ever admit this, but I think he knows this isn't one of his best. Yes, teams. I was just going to uh, say that. What you just said, Blake, I guarantee he thinks the same thing. Yeah, he knows this isn't one of his best teams, but I, I think he likes the way these guys have responded to that yep. Week 2 loss against Texas, and they're going to go into November with a chance to make the college football playoff. I don't know that they get there. I um, I, I think they probably don't make the playoff. Um, they might make it to Atlanta, though. And and again, I think he I think he knew going into this season that winning a national championship this year mm-hmm. was pretty far fetched. Um, but I think he's having a lot of fun seeing just how how long this team can stay in that hunt. Yeah, we'll we'll see how how much fun he's having after that LSU game. That's that's one True. that's still concerns or I would be concerned if I was uh, an Alabama fan but yet uh, like you said all you need is a chip in a chair give him a chance in the, in Atlanta if it ends up being Georgia and Alabama and you pull an upset and you're in the playoff speaking of um of the playoff and and where things stand right now in the SEC Ole Miss is kind of hovering around I know they've already lost to Alabama but how good is Ole Miss this year I think Ole Miss is good enough to beat all the teams they're supposed to beat and i'm not sure if they're they're good enough to beat you know a couple of the best teams on their schedule in some ways that's reminiscent of their their sugar bowl team a couple years ago okay. uh, like you go back and and look at that season and, and that was a lot of uh old miss beating the beatable teams now you do have to throw in this, this year though that they beat lsu a, a pretty good lsu team um, home game. Oxford was was rocking in a way it usually isn't that night, and and they got a big one there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think there there's tiers in the SEC. Georgia is probably on a tier of its own. Um, I, I think there's a maybe a really really small tier behind Georgia, uh, where I would probably put Alabama. And even though Ole Miss beat LSU. Uh, that game's played again on a neutral field right now. I would I would probably pick LSU uh, to win. So I, I think that's kind of a second tier. And then you know I think there's the next tier. You, you've got probably Ole Miss and and maybe even Missouri 
uh, in there. So I, I think they're pretty good. Like I think they're probably in that that four or five range in the conference. And to their credit, again, they, they've beaten a lot of the teams, really all the teams that they should beat. And, and Lane Kiffin has done a really nice job of that throughout his tenure. Um, you know, I, I I wrote earlier this season that Kiffin. You know, need, needs to win a big game or two here uh, now along the way, and, and they responded. They beat LSU. Um, but really, the success of, of his tenure there has been about beating the Arkansas and the Texas A&M's and the Auburn. Um, he's been pretty consistent that. I, I added it up the other day. He's 0-4 against Saban and Ole Miss. I mean, there's a lot of coaches that would fall in that category. You take Alabama out of the mix, and against the other five teams in the division, uh, Ole Miss is, is ten and seven under Lane Kiffin, and obviously, you know, it's been getting better lately. So, you know, I think for Ole Miss, that's that's pretty good stuff, and and something to keep perspective in. You take Alabama out, going ten and seven in four years against everybody else in it, and that record still has a chance to improve. That's pretty good. With Georgia. You got the the rivalry game, obviously against Florida, but not a good Florida. But then you got Missouri, you've got Ole Miss, you've got Tennessee, three of the you know better teams, I guess, within the conference. Without Brock Bowers, any concern on you know them losing one of those games? Yeah, I, I think there, I think there should be be some concern. You look at this this four game stretch here, and I think we're going to find out whether um, you know Georgia's contender or pretender. Uh, you, you know, I just said Florida uh, this this week in a cocktail party, then Missouri, Ole Miss, and then at Tennessee. I know Tennessee is is not having the season it wants, and it's sort of out of the division race for all realistic purposes and licking its wounds. But um, you know that game being at Neyland Stadium, I think might make it the biggest uh, the biggest threat on Georgia's regular season schedule. I, I would say differently. If Missouri or Ole Miss were on the road, uh, I do sort of have a hard time seeing Georgia losing at home um, to, to one of those teams. But yeah, I mean, you know, their their schedule has been such cake to this point. I really don't think we feel like uh, we have a great read on Georgia. At least I know I don't. And now you have the Brock Bowers injury thrown in; he's going to miss at least the next um, you know handful of games. I think we're going to find out what George is made of here um, in these next few weeks. I know Kentucky was supposed to be like this proving game, but I don't know. I mean, Kentucky's this is starting to feel like a Kentucky season where they come out hot out of the gate against a mostly weak schedule, um, and then next thing you know, they're seven and five in the Music City Bowl that they really weren't that good. Um, so I, I think. I think we're going to find out here the next few weeks what George is made of. Uh, I still don't know whether we'll know if they're good enough to win the national championship. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, I think we'll know, are they are they in that contender group or is this just not that Georgia team? Um, I kind of think it is that Georgia team. Uh, and yet, I do feel like they could, they could drop one in these next four. Don't know who it's going to be. Uh, like I said, might have to, I might pick Tennessee if I had to pick one of the four. Um, wouldn't feel a lot of conviction in that, but if you told me I could have the field here, mm-hmm. um, or I had to take Georgia to roll through this next stretch four and zero, that'd be really tough. I'd be on the fence on that, but I think I might lean toward taking the field and, and saying Georgia slips up in one of these four. 
the big narrative of from the outside looking into the SEC, from outside uh, the conference and the fans of the conference has been, this is a bad year for the SEC. It, it's a down year for the SEC, yet what we just talked about, Georgia, who knows? They, they could... They could come back and win a third straight national championship, which hasn't been done since the 40s. But with that said, when you look at each school individually, a lot of the schools have underachieved. The one school that has overachieved, and I don't even think it's close. In fact, I don't think there's anybody else in the conference I would say has overachieved, but Missouri. Right? Yeah, they have. And and Eli Drinkwitz, I mean, these conversations are... That's sort of futile before Halloween of like who's going to be the SEC coach of the year. Um, I can remember one year at this time of the year, uh, there was some chatter on the SEC network about Jeremy Pruitt being a, a front runner for SEC coach of the year. And by the, and by the end of the season, everybody was like, uh, Pruitt's inching toward the hot seat. You know? so, uh, he's inching, he's stage, inching toward the clink. That's what he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> at, at this stage of the, the, the calendar, I would say, you know, Eli Drinkwitz would be my front runner uh, for SEC Coach of the Year for whatever that is worth. Um, he he made what's proven to be a really good hire at offensive coordinator, and he handed off uh, the play calling duties to Kirby Moore. That's paid off. Missouri's got one of the most exciting offenses in the SEC. Um, you know, Brady Cook is he had that off season surgery, and we see that sometimes. And that becomes like this narrative of, oh, the, the quarterback was hurt last year. That's why he was struggling. And then they come out in the next fall, and it's, it's the same dang quarterback that were before. Well, in Brady Cook's case, that hasn't been true. He, he did get better after that offseason surgery, so maybe that was uh, that, that shoulder was affecting him uh, last year because he's been fantastic. Luther Burden, you know, there was so much hype for him last year at Missouri. I don't know whether it was the expectations or just getting used to the college game or what, but that guy, you know, he didn't really do all that much as compared to his recruiting ranking last year. Well, now he looks every, as a sophomore, he looks every bit of the five-star talent yes, he does. Um, that he was expected to be. And and Cody Schrader, um, from, from my alma mater, Truman State, Division II school, Go Truman. is leading the yeah, they go, go Bulldogs, huh? Uh, he's leading the SEC in, in rushing. Um, now, is he the most talented back in the SEC? Uh, probably not, but sometimes being a good running back, it's, it's not always about having the, the most talent. I think mm-hmm. it's about um, how you run. He's a very hard runner. It's about your offensive line. Missouri's offensive line is playing really well. Um, and defensively, they're not bad, you know? So you add it all up, they're a tough out. I mean, this is... You know, this isn't an eleven and one Missouri team, I don't think, but I think this is like a nine and three type of Missouri team. They won um, the division in back to back years, twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, and as memory serves, that twenty thirteen group was act was they were pretty dang good. Uh, I think that was the year they had James Franklin. They had a lot of weapons. Um, Michael Sam. I mean, that that team was was loaded. I don't think this Missouri team's as good as that one. Uh, but then they won the division again the following year in what was a really down year for the East. Um, and I want to say Missouri played in like the Citrus Bowl that year or something against Minnesota. To me, this kind of reminds me of that Missouri team. Um, like this is this is a team that that could be good enough to play in like a, a Citrus Bowl and and have like a nine and three type of season. The kind of the opposite of Drinkowitz and the offensive coordinator hire is what's happened at Arkansas. 
Um, and the season has just completely gone down the drain. And now Eno's out, all of this thing. How do you see this playing out at Arkansas after this Pittman back with all kinds of staff changes? How do you think this works out? Yeah, boy. I mean, I thought, I really thought Pittman was going to make it through this, um, but I didn't have a 7-3 to three <laughs> loss to Mississippi State on my dance card here. So that's made me reevaluate it, and it's, I think he's he's heading to a really dangerous spot. I think he can still get through it, but I think it's going to be close. I mean, if, if he wins one more, he avoids that provision in his contract where his buyout gets reduced by, like, Five and a half million because um, it's been misreported a lot of places out there that uh, that this clause is if his overall record dips below five hundred, it is. But it's since two thousand twenty one, mm-hmm. so the the twenty twenty uh, pandemic season is not included in that clause. And, and Arkansas went three and seven that year, so it's just from twenty twenty one to present date. So Pittman's record right now is still two games over five hundred during that stretch. So he would need to lose out, uh, or at least lose the next three, to give Arkansas a chance uh, to unlock that cheaper buyout. And that would include, that. looking at the schedule, that means he would need to lose to Florida International. Um, that's probably not going to happen. He's probably you know, going to avoid that cheaper buyout. But maybe it just gets so bad, guys. I mean, if, if, if he goes 3-9 and nine or something, who's to say Arkansas just doesn't stomach the, the $15 yeah. million? that it's going to cost. I mean, I really don't think Arkansas, because that just gets rid of Pittman, you still got to get rid of the staff. I really don't think Arkansas wants to do that. I think they wanted to give this thing every chance to make it work. Um, and so I think that's why we've seen Pittman fire Danny. You know, so what, what, what Arkansas needs now, what Pittman needs, is for the offense to improve these next few weeks, to get a couple wins, and then the narrative can become Danny Enos was a really bad hire. Yes. <laughs> Pittman be- deserves some blame for that, but Enos becomes the fall guy, right? Yeah. If you start showing some offensive improvement, you say, Pittman screwed up in hiring him, but this thing's salvageable. Give him another shot to hire a new coordinator in the offseason and, and refuel for 2024. I think that narrative becomes harder to sell if the offense still stinks these next few weeks. It, it makes it a harder sell that, that Enos is the fall guy then at that point. But that that's a really good card for the struggling coach to play is yep. is fire the coordinators and, and, and make the coordinators the fall guy. Um, you only get to play that card once. Yeah, uh, which is <laughs> right. the difference between exactly. Pittman and Jimbo Fisher. Like Jimbo's already played that card. Um, <laughs> Pittman, he lost his coordinators last year. They left for better jobs, um, but he hasn't played the you know, I screwed up with my coordinator high. Mm-hmm. Let me fire him and, and get a mulligan. He hasn't played that card yet. So maybe that card is enough to save him into 2024. I hope it works out. I think we all like Sam Pittman. That makes it harder also, I think, on an administration to want to fire a guy who's beloved by fans. But after a while, Arkansas fans are not going to accept three and nine if it ends up being that way. So certainly it doesn't matter if you're likable or not. Uh, they, they're going to want you out, and we'll see if uh, – 
if anything comes to fruition as far as uh, a firing of, of Sam Pittman. Again, he's a friend of the show. We certainly hope that that does not happen. Blake Topmeyer covers the SEC and covers it extremely well for USA Today Network. He's their SEC, SEC columnist. You can follow him on Twitter at B. Topmeyer. Catch him every other week during the college football season talking with us here on Sports 56 Morning. So, Blake, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Thank you so okay, much. Okay, sounds good. Take care. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, the fans still want to have a beer with Sam Pittman. They just don't want to do it as, with him as the, being the Arkansas coach. At least, yeah, it's, it's looking a lot like that, right? <laughs> they they like him. Uh, they just don't like him as their coach anymore um, is the way it's going. And it'll be interesting. Um, as he said, though, if they do get better offensively over the next few weeks, that certainly looks a lot better for him. It does. Um, and you can just go, yeah, all right, I screwed up with Dan Enos. Give me, a, give me another shot at this thing. And give me a mulligan. See if I can find an offensive coordinator out there that can actually score more than three points in a game. Folks, Genesis Diamonds, so many people continue to go to Genesis Diamonds since they've been open here in Memphis, and they're blown away from the moment they walk in the door. First of all, when you walk in, just the beautiful showroom that they have, and then you see the selection of diamonds and fine jewelry, just case after case of jewelry that you could see right there in the store. The pre-owned Rolex watches, massive selection of those as well. Then it's about the service and the prices and everything else that goes with it at Genesis Diamonds. You can go see them in the Poplar Commons Shopping Center that's at Poplar and Perkins Extended. They sit right there in the middle of that shopping center. If you are looking for engagement rings, looking for any fine jewelry, Go see the folks at Genesis Diamonds. Something for every budget out there, every price point from uh, under 100 bucks to thousands of dollars, everything in between, they've got it. And they don't have commission salespeople, so they're not there to pressure you into buying the most expensive thing in the store. They're there to educate you and help you become a smarter shopper when it comes to buying diamonds and fine jewelry. Genesis Diamonds, again, Poplar Commons Shopping Center, Poplar and Perkins Extended. All right, when we come back, we'll wrap things up. Yahoo Sports has uh, put out its uh, level of players this year in the NBA. We'll go over some of that and then uh, put a wrap on things, hand things off to Dave Willotion for Wolo and Friends. This is Sports 56 Mornings with Greg and Eli on Real Sports Talk, Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. Be sure to follow us at Sports 56 WHBQ on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to watch live video of our shows, stay up to date with station events, and have chances to win prizes. Don't miss out on anything that's going on. Follow us at Sports 56 WHBQ. Now, back to Sports 56 Mornings on Sports 56 and 98.5 FM. This hour is brought to you by Acura of Memphis. Who's lightning? Here once again are Greg Gaston and Eli Savoy. Season opening doubleheader in the NBA tonight. Lakers at the Nuggets, followed by the Suns at the Warriors. The Suns, according to the Shams, will unlikely, will, will more than unlikely, let me let me let me start again. Sun star Bradley Beal is unlikely to play tonight in the season opener versus the Warriors. I had no idea that Beal was dealing with a back ailment. First game of the year, and it looks like he will not play in the game between the Suns and the Warriors. So Yahoo Sports has put together levels. They're levels of players going into the 23-24 season. The first level they call the bus drivers. They're the stars of the league. They have six players in this level. Giannis, Steph Curry, KD, Luka, Jokic, and Tatum. Just those six. Good with you? Sure. 
They're level two. It says, and this is from the Yahoo Sports uh, breakdown, their criteria breakdown. Level two consists of players that are the best player on a contender or an overqualified number two player on a championship team. Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, keep that in mind, OKC, LeBron James, and Kawhi Leonard. Not on that list is John Morant. Wouldn't John Morant be on that second level? He is the best player on a contender or is now national prognostications like Yahoo Sports are looking at the Grizzlies no longer as a contender. Uh, people are just downgrading John Morant because he's got a 25-game suspension. So that's that's what you think it is. So I don't know why you would down. Now, the third level is best supporting actor. Devin Booker, Jalen Brown, Anthony Davis, Anthony Edwards, De'Aaron Fox, Paul George, Kyrie Irving, Damian Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, Jamal Murray, All-Stars, then John Morant's on that list, as is Zion Williamson, who is healthy at least for the opener tomorrow night in Memphis. We'll see how long he stays healthy. But there's your list with John Morant in that third level, or on that third level, according to Yahoo Sports. See if Zion... Gets in town and gets too much barbecue. One can only hope. Because if that guy is trimmed down and in shape and ready to go and not hurt, he's explosive. The owners of the barbecue restaurants in town can only hope <laughs> that he comes by. Do and, you have no and, do you have no hope that this guy will like get it together in his career and be the star no, that everybody he thought he would? I mean, it's it's simply a health issue. I don't I don't know if he could stay healthy or not, but if he does, he's going to be an all star. Like he's he's awesome when he's on the court. It's just well, whether he can stay on the court, I don't know if he'll stay on the court. Yeah, but it's not only staying staying healthy, and one may have to do with the other, but staying healthy, but also staying in shape, because we've seen him where he's been. Let's be honest, fat, and then we've seen him where he got hurt. Now I don't know if the if if the weight had anything to do with the injury. But he's slimmed down now. He looks good. We'll see uh, if he can continue. If, if he's playing, he's going to be like uh, you're. When you're not playing, when you're injured and not able to do anything, I could see where you might get fat. If you're actually out there playing and practicing or anything else, probably not going to get fat. Yeah, but he when he started his career, he was chunky. But that's fine. Though, he's still dominant at that. Yeah, it doesn't matter. That's like, true. He, his weight doesn't he was matter. Still explosive. It's all about playing. He just right. Has he to play. can play with more weight on his bones. You're right. You're absolutely right. The dude is an absolute force when he's actually on the court. Moving can be stressful, folks, but if you've got a move coming up, you want to make sure you get the professionals to help you so you don't have any issues, problems, anything like that that comes up during the move. Don't try and do it yourself. Don't ask your friends to do it. They don't want to help you move. They may say yes, but they don't really want to do it. I'll tell you that much. And you don't really, they don't, they don't care about your belongings. You got to get professionals who know what they're doing, who do this for a living. And they're going to make sure that every little thing, every little detail is taken care of for you. All your belongings are getting where they're going. No issues, no problems whatsoever. That's black tie moving. Give them a call. 901-316-6196. Or you can go to blacktiemoving.com slash Memphis. They will work with you. Coming up with a plan fitting both your needs 
and fitting your budget, and you get a no-obligation quote up front, so there's no surprises. They also give you a moving concierge available to you 24-7 so that something comes up, you got a question or anything during the process, they're there to answer the question for you. Black Tie Moving, they're the professionals. Get them on your side when you are moving. 901-316-6196 or go to blacktiemoving.com slash Memphis. That'll do it for us today on this Tuesday edition of Sports 56 Morning. Shout out to our great guests, Drew Hill, Steve Sands, Jeff Crane, Rich Duncan, and Blake Topmeyer are back bright and early tomorrow morning starting at 7 a.m. Among our guests, Jonah Dillon from the Commercial Appeal to Talk Tigers football, plus to Michael Cole from the CA on the Grizzlies, and Jerry Palm from CBS Sports. Five favorite things. Get your list together. Your five favorite television cops of all time. Waldo and Friends on Sports 56 is next for Eli Savoy and Zach Boyd. I'm Greg Gaston. Have a great day, everybody.